go and greetings programs and welcome to the latest edition of the awesome friday movie podcast as i say it breathily in an effort to make simon laugh <laughs> uh, it's, it's working it's, it's working. working keep doing it keep, 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 yes, so keep my going. name is matthew uh and this week we are speaking of two films uh classics uh, a classic and a sequel to a classic the shining by one mr stanley kubrick and it's a more recent sequel, Dr. Sleep, as directed by Mike Flanagan. Uh, how are you, Simon? Do tell us how you are. Uh, thank you for having me today. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> I'm very excited to speak to Mr. Kubrick today about his opus. Um, yeah, I'm I feel like, I feel like most, of our, most of our voices are like parodies of 50s English voices. The I, I'm a big fan of the uh, transatlantic half American, half British accents for that newsreaders had in the 50s. Yep. Where they talk with lots of teeth. And it, it suits you very, very well when you do that accent. It, just, <laughs> you, it falls very, very naturally into your natural pattern. So that's good. Uh, we, should, yes. we should do the whole podcast in that voice. Absolutely. Uh, but, I agree. Uh, I'm so, fine. We, we were meant to... Let's, in context for this week's podcast, we were meant to go last night to the Rio and watch a double bill of Dr. Sleep and the Shining with a Q&A with Mike Flanagan. And we're both, well, you're a massive Mike Flanagan fan. And Indeed. I, I, Indeed I, already, I am. I've already, I've already recently come to his work through the spectacular Midnight Mass. And because of the world going to shit again, we didn't go. So, which I think was the right move. But it was incredibly disappointing to um, to miss that event, even though I, I, I'm i glad I didn't sit in a room with a bunch of strangers for five or six hours. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I was pretty desperate to go. I actually organized. There's a bunch of other people I know who are going to go, and basically none of us did for, for various reasons. Um, but me, I mean, me specifically for, uh, you know, health-based reasons, I just can't at the moment take the chance of being exposed uh, due to the vulnerable people in my life. And the Omicron variant is going nuts. So I think yeah. um, I think the last film I saw in theaters was, I guess it was West Side Story last week, and it's probably going to be the last one for a while. So that means I have no idea what I'm going to see, The Matrix or Spider-Man or, Spider-Man. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Kingsman. I was supposed to go... We were supposed to go to this on last night, which we're recording this on Saturday, so Friday. And on Thursday, I was supposed to see The King's Man. But uh, the Disney early screenings in Vancouver tend to be with not just press, but also influencers and contest winners. And I just couldn't be in a room with that many people. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. The nature of the podcast might change a little bit in the next couple of months, assuming things don't get better pretty quickly because I'm just not going to be able to go to movies yeah. anymore. So for, for reasons, so it's going to be the Netflix podcast. <laughs> yeah. Or, podcast. you know, my thought was we would talk more about uh, some classics and, 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 mm-hmm. and your microphones in, I can't see your face. And oh, I'm um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very, seat. it's very it's important on the radio for me to see your face. It's fine. Um, I understand with a face like mine why that would be important to you. So, yeah, well, I mean, we're on the we're on the radio because I have a face for it, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, so we were supposed to go see Doc, uh, The Shining and Dr. Sleep with Q&As, I believe, in between and after from Mike Flanagan. Yeah. And it would have been amazing. But in the end of the, like, let's see, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who I knew for a fact were planning to go, none of them did. So I kind of yeah. wonder what it was like last night. I, I get the feeling a lot of people did that because when I contacted the Rio, I haven't actually told you this, but they, they don't do refunds, but they very quickly said, thanks for getting in touch. Just let us know the next screening you want to go to. Just um, include this email and we'll credit you for that show. So oh, I, nice. I think they've been very realistic about people's uh, ability to do these kind of things at the moment. And um attendance is going to be restricted to 50 percent again like you've got to feel sorry that for the rio the rio faced bankruptcy very close to bankruptcy earlier this year or was it last year when they got rescued yeah it was uh it was during the pandemic that's all i can remember for sure because yeah. time is a flat circle and i don't remember. so i do feel sorry for them i really really do and, and many other businesses that need people there but um what can you do at the moment? But I on mean, the plus side, know. on the plus side, I didn't make a total ass out of myself speaking to Mike Flanagan, which is a hundred percent guaranteed. And if Katie Seagull was there as well, that just would have been a, a shit show of stuttering embarrassment as I try to formulate a sentence that Midnight Mass was great and also <laughs> I liked Hush. Like, I mean, secretly, I want to be, I want to be included in his cabal of actors because have you seen the cast for his next couple of things it, I indeed i have pretty, we'll, come, we'll come back to that because uh kylie Cur- kylie karen karen who is in dr sleep has been cast in his next uh netflix thing which is very exciting right. because she was one of my i think i even put it in my like 2019 rap year year yearly wrap-up post that she was mm. one of my favorite performers that year so who is she in dr sleep uh, she plays Abra, the young the young girl with oh. the shining that Dan connects right. with. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so the plan tonight is we uh, I rewatched both films in reverse order, which was uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, and Simon is a huge fan of The Shining and has watched yeah. Doctor Sleep as well. So we're going to talk about them anyway. We didn't get to go to the show, but we're going to talk about them anyway. So. Now that we bantered, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's start with the Shining. Yeah, and uh, do we really do we need to do a plot synopsis for the Shining? No. I feel like the movies well, came out when 1980, 1980, 1979. I mean, and a pl- as a plot synopsis, plot synopsis, even there's not too much you could say. The setup is pretty straightforward. There's a hotel, and it's winter season, and um, Jack. And his family get hired to go live in this hotel just to keep it ticking over until tourist season starts again. Yeah. Jack, the aspiring writer, spends most of his time writing and drinking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, God. Who'd do that? (laughs) Yeah. So the I've got a question for you before we talk about the movie The Shining, because I've never read the book The Shining, and I hear there are some key differences between the Kubrick interpretation of the original book. Have you read the original Shining book at all? So I have read The Shining, but I am 40 years old and I read it before I was 20. So right. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the freshest thing in my mind. 
Um, I do know there's there are several pretty key differences. It's actually pretty interesting in that um, when we get to Doctor Sleep, um, how that movie manages to thread the needle of being both a sequel to the film The Shining and an adaptation of the book Doctor Sleep and a sequel to the novel The Shining. It manages yeah. to it manages to pull that off in a way that I didn't even think would be possible. And I haven't read the book Doctor Sleep. I've read a lot about the book Doctor Sleep, but I heard it was bad, so I never read it. Um, yeah, already. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean the 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 book and the movie of The Shining end in very different places. Uh, so the uh, having to be a sequel to both of those things is would be difficult. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, have you, and you haven't read it at all. No, so I've read a couple of Stephen King's, um, but I have never read The Shining. And um, it, it would be quite difficult for me, especially when you've got a, a movie maker like Kubrick, who is absolutely singular in his vision of something. If I think if I were to read The Shining, I, I would have had to have read it before I watched the movie, because... The movie now is my default version of The Shining. And if I read the story of The Shining, I'm going to constantly be comparing it to this movie version. I'm not sure that's fair on the book, really, especially if there's been some creative license taken by... Well, of course, there was lots of license taken by Kubrick. Uh, So I'm going to use a different book as an example of this. Um... Sorry, hang on. Just going to put all this into do not disturb mode. Sorry for the live uh, reading of what I'm doing right now, radio. Uh, So I'm going to use the movie Jurassic Park as an example uh, because I don't know if you've read the book Jurassic Park. I I, I I know you've seen the movie Jurassic Park because it's great. But the book and the movie are very different. Mm-hmm, they really are. They're very, they're very much the same, but they're also very different. Even down to like little details, like the fact that in the, you know, in the movie, the two kids, it's an older sister and a younger brother, and in the books, it's reversed. Or I should say, the, the movie's reversed from the book. And when they that scene, the great scene where they go and they find the sick triceratops in the book, it's a stegosaur. And like, these are like the littlest of the changes. There's so many changes, and. I used to be like what you're describing in that I read the book and then I saw the movie and I love both, but I always sort of thought the movie was a little bit lesser than because it wasn't just the book. But now that I'm older, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, it's not a problem for me anymore. I guess is where I'm going with this. I recognize that adaptation is an art in and of itself and that. Mm-hmm. um, some of the greatest film projects we have are adaptations of books and those adaptations change things. And I think in, in transposing things from one medium to another, that's a natural thing that's going to happen. And I don't yeah. think that one has to be lesser than, or even my, to put it in your language, one is not my default over the other. Yeah. You know, I can I, just recognize yeah, them as separate, I... separate entities. I, it's definitely an advantage if they're very different from each other. Like if you compare Die Hard to the original book, which became Die Hard, which I can't remember the title now. You probably do because you've got that kind of memory. I but, do not uh, remember, but it is 
the yeah, the Die Hard, the book by Robert Savant is is a really good read. It's really entertaining, um, but it's it's got a much older cop in it, and he's got different motivations, and it's it's quite different in the same way how Jurassic Park book and movie are different, and you can kind of see how they took the core of one thing and made another, and I. And it's different than saying, uh, say, a Harry Potter that tried to be closer to the book, but had to make some key changes. I think if you've got a bigger sweeping difference, then you can kind of get out of the mindset of comparing the two at once. So maybe I should read the Shining book. At yeah. Some point. The, the book Die Hard is based on is apparently called Nothing Lasts Forever. That's right. That's and it's also a sequel. Die Hard is technically a sequel. So... <laughs> Uh, I did, my one piece of trivia about that is I remember that I think it was Frank Sinatra started a movie yeah. based on the the book that that book is a sequel to. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. So. Um, How's that Reese for a digression? Reese Witherspoon and Frank Sinatra played the same character. That's true. Yeah. Um. So the the interesting thing about The Shining is it, it kind of asks a question that I think Dr. Sleep answers, which I thought was really interesting. I know we're, we're, it's kind of a bridge already, but what I, what I've always loved about the shining is um, who's haunted, like what is haunted. Mm -hmm. So Jack goes to this hotel and it's, it's portrayed as a, a very haunted hotel haunted by the people that died there and the previous workers and some bad things went down. Mm -hmm. but his son who who gets in this weird trance and he uh famously writes messages on mirrors because he's very good at backwards writing um his, his son is obviously either affected by this haunting or a key part of the haunting and what i think is really interesting about dr sleep is that it kind of answers that question that danny was a key part to what Jack was going through. Not just a passive part of it, but maybe an instigator of what Jack was going through. Like, I love this idea that the hotel was like this battery. They described it as a battery to his shining energy. And these or that he, he, was a, he was a battery that, like, lit the place up, basically. Yeah, and these like hundred ghosts came came out because of his shining energy and Jack got involved. And then Jack's terrible personality traits uh came sort of rolled into this and and i think it's really really interesting looking back on the shining with that knowledge because when you watch it without dr sleep you kind of always is wondering is this jack's haunting or the hotel's haunting is it danny's haunting like where where is this where does this come from like how, how would you stop this like what's the root of it and the um I, I actually find that kind of clarification really satisfying. And it's never really comprehensively answered in, in the movie, but it's comprehensively answered in Doctor Sleep, and I find that really interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, The Shining is very much... It focuses on Jack and on Danny. Um, and although Danny is clearly affected by the hotel or is, or is affecting the hotel... Um, like it's Jack that's getting the brunt of the uh, haunting, right? And it's even outlined very early on that the previous tenant caretaker 
killed his entire family with an axe, which is, as we all know, the, um, you know, the, the, the climax of The Shining is Jack chasing his family around with an axe in the hedge maze. Um, I like that there's sort of vague implications as to where the ghosts come from in The Shining, but it's never really truly, it's not even really answered in Dr. Sleep, but I also really love the idea that they, I mean, I don't want to say that we're supposed to be talking about The Shining, but all I want to talk about is Dr. Sleep. I'd like to preface everything that we're about to say the rest of this podcast with the fact that I adore Dr. Sleep as a movie, (laughs) as both a standalone piece of art and also as a sequel to more specifically the the film the shining um but you know and even though it's it'd be pretty easy argument to say that it's a little bit over long it's two and a half hours long um but flanagan is so good and cares so much about character and character arc and character resolution that even though it's also horrifying there's some brutally horrifying yeah. moments in this movie yeah, that really like no, none of that takes away from the fact that it's also a brilliant character piece mm-hmm. um i kind of want a middle piece of the story is mm-hmm. you know um mm-hmm. there's definitely room for a film to be set between the shining and dr sleep that gives us some of more of danny and more of dick halloran so mm-hmm. um I mean, I don't know what to say about The Shining, though. The Shining is a classic. And there's two types of people in the world. There's those that really like it and those that uh, don't like it. And <laughs> I think that's fine. There's I don't know anyone who just sort of thinks The Shining is fine. People tend to that's love fine, it or no. hate it. I mean, but right? it's the same. Every, every Kubrick movie is like that. There's no yeah. middle ground. You either think it's like a pinnacle of artistic cinematic expression or you think it's a big part of shit. Now, I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut, but the consensus is part of shit on that one. But, I mean, The Shining, as a piece of filmmaking, is so spectacularly precise in its elements. And that was the thing about Kubrick. Famously did multiple takes, like 50 or 60 takes of like shots, even before he gets to the reverse shots. I, my problem with The Shining now is that I, I've learned too much about Kubrick on this movie. Like, I've learned what Shelley Duvall went through, and I've learned what he puts his actors through. And uh, Yeah, it's a pretty classic I, I've case lost, of... I've lost Sorry, go some, ahead. No, I've... When I when I watched The Shining first, it was before I did any kind of film training. So, I think after a few years of doing working on sets and working with directors and seeing an alternative, I think it's really easy to fall into the trap that this kind of alter vision, this multiple take, strict take, like pushing your actors to the limit, is the only way to make high art. And um, I'm very grateful to have learned that that's not the only way you can achieve incredible results. And I think that Kubrick, as a director, is a deeply flawed director, not with his results, but how he how he gets those results uh, demands so much from an actor, from his crew as well. But 
with a kind of pretension that I don't think is valuable. Like the, 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 it's really hard for me to watch any of his movies now and not think like the take I'm watching is one of 80. The actors are suffering. Like, and was their performance any better in one take than the other? Like he, he, the deal with his takes was that he wanted every precise detail correct, including the way a jacket wafted in the wind when Tom Cruise gets out of a car. Like, so it wasn't always in the actor's control. But I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I kind of disagree deeply with his uh, philosophy of what it takes to direct a movie. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's a pretty clear and classic case of. And I think we've forgiven lots of directors for this kind of stuff. Like the, the idea that in order to achieve art, you have to be a total asshole, Yeah. you know? Um, (laughs) And the idea that, um, you know, the auteur has a vision and that vision needs to be adhered to precisely and exactly when filmmaking and any kind of acting really is a collaborative effort. And it's great that he wants the coat to flap a certain way in the wind, but that's not always going to happen and flapping a different way is not a big deal and it's not worth in the case especially in the case of the shining you know the, the number of times he you know probably berated shelly duvall specifically and yeah. you know he uh, from what i understand understand he basically was emotionally abusive to her in order to get yeah. her into the state that he wanted the character to be in as opposed to she, relying on her skill as an actor she like I'm googling this now, but she like destroyed her voice box or something. But yeah, she's not even she's scene. not even an actor anymore. Like she yeah. lives in the kind of, like yeah she yeah. had a she had a rough go in Hollywood. She um she was made to do the scene with him breaking through the door so many times. So she basically had to scream so much that um she physically like broke her voice box. Wow. And I'm this. This reminds me. Of course, it's not directly linked to The Shining, but this reminds me with the the interesting takes on interpretations of method acting at the moment. And on one side of the scale, you have Jared Leto sending rats and used condoms to people because he thinks that's method acting, and it is absolutely. Let me be absolutely clear: someone who knows what they're talking about, that is not method acting at all. That is not what. Any of the methods stipulated is just being an asshole. And yeah. on the flip side, this week the I, I haven't seen Succession, but there's a an actor in Succession who had a, a New Yorker. Um, yeah, his name is Jer- Jeremy him. Strong, right? And he, and and he the, plays and, Kendall Roy, and he's basically the protagonist of the show. And it's a super interesting read. And he is. Yeah. Uh, I have so go say what you're going to say because I have I have yeah. thoughts about this. <laughs> so. That that article, which was kind of snidey, is like, oh, look at this guy going too over the top. Like, all of the methods that's listed in that article are completely valid and trained method acting elements. And what's been really interesting is that after the article came out, directors, co-actors, everyone who's worked with him has said, this is a normal thing he does, and it, it's what makes him amazing. It's what puts him into the character. And the whole, whole idea of playing the kazoo for, um, during Frank Langella's speech frank langella told him to do things that would annoy him like that's what the context is left out of this and so he is not being an asshole to anyone he's being super inclusive and really really focused 
and I've never seen Succession, but he's meant to be fantastic in it. And so, so it's interesting difference. because uh, sorry that profile came out, and then the, later the later on, like the next week or the next day, the uh, the season finale of Succession aired, and like it pretty much was that, that episode was basically like you could basically just see him stand up after. There's a specific scene where you could basically see him stand up and be like. I'll take Miami now, dicks. Like, is <laughs> so good, and it actually it's interesting because it goes back to that um, what we were just talking about with Kubrick and you know the that exacting uh, way he wanted to work and the way he demanded so much of his actors. So there's a scene in the, in the finale of Succession where the three main siblings, Kendall and Roman and Shiv. <laughs> Um, are sort of having it out. They're they're worried their dad is about to screw them over, and they're having this scene. And Kendall's having a very emotional time. He's in the middle of building towards finally telling them something that they don't know about that happened a couple years ago, a couple of seasons ago. And the way the director triggered that for him was to not tell him what was going to happen, but to let the scene play out. And then he just sent an extra in to empty trash, like someone dressed as a kitchen worker comes out of a door and puts trash in a trash bin bin and goes back inside. And that was the moment, and apparently Jeremy Strong just intuited that that was the moment he was to fully break down, and he did. And it's an amazing scene. And it's such a level of trust, and the director didn't tell him. Like, Mark Mylod, the director of that episode and producer of the show, had such trust in his performance and his ability to perform that he knew he could just, like, give him the slightest of nudges indirectly and it would result in a great performance so and that's just like the exact opposite of the kind of dick that the auteurs like kubrick are mm. and and like as another example i don't know if you like i know some of you don't like the last jedi and you're wrong and that's fine but you if you if, if you own the last jedi then you have access to a feature-length documentary making of called the director and the jedi and ryan johnson is a director who has a very singular vision has very specific taste has very specific things he wants to get out of character uh, perform actors performances and character arcs and if you watch that movie you'll see he is incredibly gentle and very empathetic and approaches every scene uh every actor even in a scene just to give them feedback in the most like uh, there's no other word for it, empathetic way and it's mm-hmm. it's it's like a it flies in the, it also flies in the face of this idea that we need to forgive assholes for being assholes because they produce art. Yeah. So that's my, my rant that, and you know, it, I, I like the shining, but Kubrick was an asshole. And you don't have to be an asshole to be an auteur as well. Like there's, I read a, an interesting article about Mary Elizabeth Winstead this week, her work on death proof, how Tarantino specifically wrote this character to be brought, uh, on the page. He wanted everything on the page. And as he was filming, her read of this character was so uh, different from what he imagined. Instead of controlling what he wanted, he realized that she was giving him this, this character a whole new aspect. And he basically changed the whole idea of what this character would be and just let her run with it and let her form it. And he said that's that single moment actually changed how he makes all of his films from that, that point on. And I think you can still be an alter and have that design and have that visual element and have that characteristic, but still trust actors and still work with spontaneity and improvisation. 
because there's not a single moment of spontaneity in anything Kubrick's made. By design, whenever you see that spontaneous energy, that is the talent of the actor being focused for eight or nine hours doing the same scene and finding that energy over and over again. There's fantastic B-roll of Jack Nicholson getting ready to go through the door. I'm sure you've seen this as well, where he's psyching himself up with the axe to go through that door, like over and over and over and over. And how like psychologically and emotionally and physically the actor like Nicholson is very, very good at that. His intensity is, is incredible, but Kubrick gets the credit for that. And there's the, whenever you see any kind of energy or spontaneity in, in any of his films, it's because of the actor and that kind of direction loses random electricity. It loses the, opportunity for for naturalized things to happen and um, the more i learn about filmmaking the less respect i have for that kind of approach yeah yeah that's pretty much pretty much it right like the the second that i figured out you didn't need to be an asshole to produce art or that we didn't need to forgive assholes because they produce art changed my entire worldview really yeah you know it, well, for once I was a babe and now I am a man. But anyway, <laughs> but, so that's very much like The Shining. <laughs> the Shining I mean, it is exactly the, 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 the context of The Shining as you get older changes, but I'll never forget watching The Shining the first time. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, you, you talk about Twist. I'm going to spoil The Shining for you. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it in the last, like, when did this come out? 40 years ago? Yeah, 1980, so 41 years. <laughs> oh, wow. No, I'm sorry. 1980 was 20 years ago. You must be mistaken. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure when you talk about perfectly set up and then delivered twists that you never saw coming, like to see him writing and writing and writing all through the movie, and you think he's slowly going insane, and then when Shelley Duvall looks at what he's been writing all this time and it's that same line over and over and over and you realize oh fuck he this has not been a slow process this has been a totality from the beginning yep uh incredible and of course the ending that that final image of him frozen in the hedges it's not the same as the book but uh it's one of the great like freeze frame endings and it's a true horror ending as well yeah yeah having just rewatched it i can confirm all of that and it's <laughs> it's a weird fucking movie as well just like blowjobs from people in bear suits and people in bathrooms and just things that creak in the dark it really plays very strongly on deep human fears it's a very uncomfortable movie to watch yeah it's also um i think the the, the setting not only just the fact that it's this remote hotel that you can't get to or from in the winter that they're stuck at, but also just the the very, it's not, I was going to say the very 70s of it, but it's not that. It's that like there's a scene in a bathroom and the bathroom is basically all like bright red and white. And a lot of the locations have that sort of like really unsettling color schemes and unsettling like layouts. And it's a really interesting effect. Um and I, I do, I do really like The Shining. I don't, I'm not gonna lie. I actually don't love The Shining. I think it's a great mm -hmm. movie. I don't think it's like an all timer for me. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I do, you know, very much appreciate it. And um, I think it's funny because uh, I was just, before we started recording, I looked up my notes from the times that I've watched this since I started taking copious notes. And, uh, and not last night, but the last time I watched it, my main takeaway was apparently that I wish that Jack had started out nice. <laughs> but he's actually an asshole from the start. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not it's not just that he goes crazy immediately and that's a big reveal. It's that he's just he's just an asshole the whole time. Yeah. So and you can tell uh I could really tell actually having watched them in reverse order last night. Um every time in the first third or so before he goes to the bar and gets his first drink, every time he talks about not drinking, he says it with such disdain. Like he really wants to be drinking, you know, he wants, he, he, you know, he's trying to be good for his family, but he's, he's not good, you know, and I think he, he knows that. So it's, uh, it's a super interesting movie. Um, but I want, I don't know about you, but I want to move on to Dr. Sleep because I, yeah, that's the... I, I adore Dr. Sleep. So for those of you who haven't seen it, Dr. Sleep is a sequel to both the novel and the movie Shining. It follows uh, Danny Torrance, now grown. Uh, it's about 30 years later. Um, and he, you know, the beginning of the movie, he leads a bit of a, a rough life, but he eventually gets himself turned around. And eventually he finds a uh, another young person who also shines. Uh, and he's been stifling his shining. He, you know, he spends... 20 to 30 years basically just drinking and boozing and doing everything he can to dull himself to to close things out of his mind to stop the ghosts and other things from getting in and uh all the while being you know occasionally visited by the specter of uh uh dick halloran who is played by scatman crothers in the shining and is played by um carl lumley in dr sleep uh, who appears to him as a ghost, because, of course, Dick dies in The Shining. Uh, but eventually he gets his life turned around, and he meets another young girl who shines, and she is attracted the attention of Rebecca Ferguson and Zahn McLaren and another group of what are effectively vampires. Uh, they call themselves the True Knot, and effectively they feed on shine. Yeah. Uh, they travel North America, and they just feed on kids who shine. And it extends their life, and... You know, they all shine to some degree themselves, uh, and uh, consuming that shining get, like heightens their abilities and lengthens their lives. Um, I don't want to spoil the end of this movie because you should definitely watch it. It is great. I don't know. So I know that you didn't... I, 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 I mean, say, yeah, what, what's your initial impression? Because I've seen this movie several times, and uh, it was one of my favorite movies of 2019. So what's your impression? So... My impression of the amount of the shot, the Doctor Sleep that I've seen so far is kind of up and down. So, on the upside, I I think Mike Flanagan is so good at visual framing and introducing things into frame and editing in and out of frame. I mean, it, in Midnight Mass, that was one of the high points for me is just how it looked and how it how it moved. Um. So visually, it's great, and and in some of this, these scenes, he's recreating some elements of The Shining as well, and the the work that must have gone into recreating that so precisely, it's kind of mind blowing how perfect his recreation of the Overlook is. The 
Um, I I find I found what I've watched so far a deeply uncomfortable movie to watch. Like not enjoyable at all on any level to watch. Like it's a it just feels really ah, what's the right word? Dark and I've watched a lot of horror movies and there's something about this film. Maybe it's because Danny's really emotionally feeling it. And uh, a lot of that is because Ewan McGregor in this is fantastic. Like he's a great Mm -hmm. actor anyway. He is so good in this. He is so good in this. He is, uh, he's done that great thing where you know what he sounds like loud. And in this, he's very, very quiet. He's dialed everything down. He's doing a lot of work with just his eyes and his expressions. He looks thoroughly beaten, like mm-hmm. the world has chewed him up and spit him out. And and we know it's because of the ghosts he sees and the, the futures he sees and his shining skills. So he really sells it. And the, the there is an issue here where there are some children in, in danger. A very early scene um, has Rebecca Ferguson's Not Vampires, uh, basically steal a child and and as a parent now my context for that has completely changed like I I I can watch many many dark and horrifying things but children being like taken or hurt is a, is a line for me these days so I have real trouble watching that um and as that subplot extended past the 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 women they, the the girl sorry they find in the cinema the rattlesnake snake girl mm-hmm. uh, which will snake, make sense snake bite Andy snake bite Andy yeah um, I'm not sure that that side of the story actually doesn't interest me at all like the the vampires the energy vampires <laughs> the Colin Robinsons um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not interested in the in that at all in the Re- Rebecca Ferguson is an amazing actress and she's great in this as well. Um, and she's so striking looking as well. But what I'm really interested in is the bit of movie I'm up to is Danny is using his abilities to help old people die. And I know that's not going to be the whole movie, but the last 20 minutes of this movie has been that. And honestly, uh, the, the bit of the movie I've seen now is him being very, very distraught and destroyed and it being a terrible place and through the people he meets at this new town and the AA meetings and discovering he has this gift that can help people I kind of would love the rest of this movie to almost be like a hallmark Daniel Torrance didn't know where to run (laughs) until people knew how to run into him shining so Um, so so I I need need to Sorry, I need to ask a question. So you're just at the point where he's sort of dealing with the the second old man you see, right? The the one that they sing, yeah. singing. Um, yes, yeah, and it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting you say all that because effectively that is, although you know, the first whole part of the film is Danny meandering through life, feeling like his shine is a curse, and eventually finding some purpose and use for it. And then he have you have you seen the part where he sees Dick for the second time as an adult? So he's working at the hospice, and he comes into a room, and Dick is there. Have you, you haven't seen that part? 
No, no. And have you he's heard you... him? He, okay. He's heard him when when he was taking the money from the wallet. He heard him, but he didn't see him. So I haven't got. To no, he's, he definitely saw him that part too. Actually, <laughs> he's uh, he's in the so, room. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But I I I know where this film is going now because it's set up the elements. You know, he's he's starting to establish his gift can be used in a positive way. And he's going to connect with the little girl. And stop me if I'm wrong, but he's going to fight back against the energy vampires. And there's going to be a big shine off, some kind of big CG driven fight <laughs> in the last third. And honestly, I kind of want it just to be him helping old people die, like learning how to kind of counterbalance the horrors he sees through his through his shining learning a way for it to be this massively positive thing. But it's because those scenes are just lovely. It, it doesn't deal with death in a, in a supernatural way, even though he, he has a supernatural gift. He it, it's, and again, Ewan McGregor takes credit for this and Mike Flanagan gives it time to, to sort of be still, but, it's just lovely scenes like that singing with the guy who's dying is just lovely. And it, and we all think about this. This is something we all think about, like the, the, the unknown quantity of death and to have this as an answer is kind of lovely actually. Yeah. So the rest of the film is very much, yeah, it's about Danny learning that his shine isn't a, isn't a curse basically. And as the ghost of Dick Halloran at one point says that like once he's made contact with Ab, once he's met Abra. So in the, through the movie, once he's sort of turned his life around, he's staying in this room that has one whole wall. That's a chalkboard and they communicate by, you know, psychically drawing on the, on the chalkboard. Um, but once, once, so the true not about a third of the way in or maybe halfway abduct a little boy played by Jacob Tremblay. He's a baseball player who shines. And the reason he shines, the way he shines is that he, he always hits the ball. Every time he's at bat, he, oh, he knows where the ball is going to be and he hits it. And they abduct him and they brutalize him. Like this is a scene that I was telling you, you should actually, I didn't, I don't think you should skip any of this movie, but if you have a sensitivity to children being harmed and all credit to Rebecca Ferguson and Jacob Tremblay, that scene is horrifying. Uh, there's even, they have him tied down on the ground and he's crying and she explains that fear and pain purify the steam and so they brutalize him for several minutes and it is really hard to watch and that's the way they the 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 shine manifests as this like steam that they then collect and consume um and that scene uh you know abra feels it and she basically destroys the chalkboard psychically from 100 miles away (laughs) Um, and it's from that point on that they really start trying to deal with the true knot because they know that the true knot are going to come for them, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they they go to fight. You're right. They go to fight back. It's not hugely CG, but there's there's some CG elements. There's a, a great scene of Rebecca Ferguson astrally projecting where she the start of it is her flying through the air towards Abra's house. Um, but then in most of it's practical, really, like a lot of it or at least feels practical. Uh, and then the, you know, the big psychic showdown happens in a uh, mental recreation of the, uh, the hedge maze. They, you know, they, mm-hmm. in order to, once they've 
I feel like I'm giving away too much, but basically the big final showdown, they figure they can't beat Rebecca Ferguson by themselves. So they go back to the overlook to even the odds. You know, they go because the overlook it's established that the overlook is a hungry place. And Mm. Danny explains this by saying when he was a child, like, like Abra is now, he bumped into something that was like these, this, these true not people, but it wasn't people. It was a place. It's established that it's the hotel is a hungry place. And so they go back there because if it's dangerous for them, it's probably dangerous for Rebecca Ferguson as well. And there's a big showdown. Uh, And it's wonderfully executed. And I really, really wish I want you to see all of it. Yeah, I will. Um, Um, Is that I'm really glad I know about the scene that I am absolutely going to be skipping. I do have a question for you that I want spoiled because I'm interested how it affects the story. So, uh, near the beginning of the film, we see that Danny, after Overlook, is haunted by this terrifying old witch-like crone that he sees. Like yeah, she's she's the woman from the ba- she's the woman from the bathtub in room two three seven in The Shining. Right, right, right. And he he mentions when he has the chat with um, the guy on the bench, Dick the, Dick Halloran. Yeah, thank you, Dick Halloran. That she's gonna come keep keep him. coming. Yeah. Keep coming. Anyway, he goes into the bathroom. They're watching TV and he stands up and walks into the bathroom, sees her in the bathtub. And to be credit to that young actor, the trauma he must have gone through as she rises out of the bathtub and there's a scream and then he comes back and says, yeah, I'm fine. So yeah. does how, what significance does that have later on? Like, did, did he manage to like kill her in any way or is this a massive spoiler? This is a massive spoiler. So I'm happy to talk with you about this, but if we're going to keep going about in this direction, it's time for us to say, if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> you should start, you should pause and go watch it right. and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we start talking about this, let's, let's talk about a few other things. I think, so the choices Mike Flanagan faced, I think were multiple when making this movie. Uh, but I think the biggest one he probably faced, and I would have loved to have asked him more about this at the Q&A, but he he made the choice to, whenever he needed to flash back to The Shining, they recreated the sets and recast all the roles. Mm-hmm. As opposed to digitally doing anything. And I think that was 100% the right choice. Mm-hmm. Like 100%. There's a scene towards the end where Danny in the overlook goes to the bar and has a long conversation with the bartender who is clearly his father. And he's played by Henry Thomas, not Jack Nicholson and not a digital avatar of Jack Nicholson. It's just Henry Thomas made up to look like Jack Torrance and it works splendidly. And, you know, anytime there's flashback, there's a flashback to the scene in the bathroom where Jack is, hacking his way through the door and his mother has been is played in this movie by Alex Esso, who you remember from Midnight Mass. She was the the old mm-hmm. woman who who de-aged. Um, yeah. And I think in all of these it's funny because we've had conversations about this before. Uh, I think most most recently and most in depth when uh, Carrie Fisher died in about you know, like ownership of roles and such. Yeah. And, you know, digital, digitally puppeteering people and that kind of thing. And I think this is a, this movie is a great example of why we don't need to do that. <laughs> like, I don't think we needed to digitally puppeteer um, 
uh, now I've forgotten his name as soon as I need to say it. Tarkin from Rogue One. Oh, um, Christopher uh, Lee. No, 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 no. no. Oh, no. I can see his face. I'm going to kick myself. Oh, my God. The that is, I is it Basil Rathbone? Peter, Basil Peter Cushing. Peter, Peter Cushing, Cushing, right. Yeah, Peter Cushing, yeah. I don't feel that we needed to do that. Uh, you know, I've, yeah. I've always... <laughs> I've always felt yeah. that recasting that role with someone and making him look similar is the right choice. And this movie's a great example of why that's the right choice. Because they're not acting against something fake. The, basically, the right? Cushing example is really interesting because they got a, the, a voice actor to do Peter Cushing. And um, they got the voice actor to act as, Peter, as that character before they digitally put Tarkin over the top of him. And when you see this B-roll of the voice actor doing Cushing, you're like, they should have just used him. Like he, yep. he looks, he looks great. <laughs> he looks like good enough to be. If you just say he's talking, everyone would have gone, yeah, okay, that's fine. He's got the mannerisms. He's got the voice. He's, he's tall. Kind of he's, he's tall. He's yeah. slender. You know, he has the yeah. same sort of sunken cheekbones. Yeah. And like that stuff's not difficult to achieve in makeup anyway. So yeah. Um. And yeah, so yeah, this 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 movie, Doctor Sleep, is an excellent example of why that doesn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's so many just visual references to The Shining. There's I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there's a scene early in Doctor Sleep where Danny is interviewing to become the hospice worker, mm-hmm. and the office he has that interview in is basically a replica of the office that Jack Torrance has his job interview to be the caretaker in. Oh right, yeah. Right. Um, and there's lots of stuff like that. And then when they finally do get back to the Overlook, I mean, the amount of work that must have gone into recreating those sets mm. is incredible because it looks the same. It looks exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. It's also a really interesting shot where they, they talk at one point, they talk about what the inside of someone's mind looks like. And it's established that Rebecca Ferguson's mind is a cathedral. And the one time we get a quick glimpse into Danny's head, it's the overlook. It's super interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you should see Dr. Sleep. It's a great movie. If you actually, if you have access to the director's cut, which yes, is longer than two and a half hours is also, I would argue better. Uh, it has much more, it's longer and slower, but has much more context and much more mm-hmm. satisfying overall arcs. But the, the theatrical version, though, is still spectacular. That's the version I watched last night. It's still spectacular. And yeah. Rebecca Ferguson is amazing, and Ewan McGregor is amazing, and Kylie Curran is amazing. And and also, if you're a fan of Mike Flanagan, you will see tons of people who you've seen before. You know, Robert Longstreet mm-hmm. is in this. Um, uh, now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm losing names. But lots of people who... Alex Esso is another one who's in this. Like, there's lots of mm-hmm. his cohort... For the first time, I noticed that Molly C. Quinn is in. Uh, she has like a very brief cameo at the end as one of the Overlook ghosts. Um, and I'd, I'd never noticed her. I've seen this movie like four times. I'd never noticed her before. So it's just lots of people you know, that I know that he's friends with or likes working with. And, you know, and Henry Thomas, especially like the the brief glimpses of the scenes that they reshot. They basically recreated scenes from The Shining and... He is so good, even in like the little yeah. glimpses that we see playing Jack Torrance. And uh, I think there's a real balance there of trying to recreate, but also letting the actor 
do their own thing that makes it interesting. And anyway, my this is my thesis. You should watch Doctor Sleep. Um, at yeah. this point, Simon is going to start asking me spoilery questions. I think right after he says the conclusion, I just interrupted. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I, it was a tangent thought about his wife Katie Siegel uh, is not in this movie, and no. this is his biggest. Uh, this is Mike Flanagan's biggest movie he has made. Yeah, and so I, I, I would be interested to be privy on that conversation of, I don't, I don't have a part for you, darling. <laughs> In my massive movie, there's no part for you. But well, um, she's she's not in everything he makes. So she's like in no. uh, she's she's a main role in the Haunting of Hill House and a main role in yeah. Midnight Mass, but she only has a very small supporting role in um, the Haunting of Bly Manor. I don't think she Gosh. has a very big role in. Uh, Gerald's game. I'm not sure she's in either of the things he's working on right now either. So, main part in Hush, though. I know yeah. I, I I get the feeling that the the healthiest way in that kind of relationship is to be super realistic about the the about casting, yeah. and that it's never it's never personal. So it obviously it obviously right. works. Um. So yes, tell me about. Young Danny versus old crone in the bath. Like, what significance right. does that have? So, this is, okay, this is the point where press pause, go watch the movie, come back. We're getting into heavy, <laughs> heavy spoiler territory. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please come support us. Give us a five star review on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. Support us on Patreon. Visit us at the website, awesomefriday.ca. We love you. Thank you. We're talking about spoilers. You were warned. So, uh, if when you watch that scene again, so he's sitting on the bench and the ghost of Dick Halloran approaches him and they talk about how Danny's like, you, you told me that it was just pictures in a book, but they're actually coming to eat me, basically. And um, Dick explains that, like, the Overlook is a hungry place and it was only ever pictures in a book to him, but he also didn't ever shine like Danny did. And he was like a million watt battery. And in that scene, he also gives him a small tin box and tells him to, to know the box inside and out and to recreate a box in his mind. And from that point on, when Danny encounters one of the ghosts from the Overlook, he creates a box in his mind and puts the ghost into it. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a, a great scene, and I think it's the next scene with Dick, which is set like decades later. Danny's got his life turned around, and Danny's like, "Hey, what happens when I put the ghosts in the box?" And Dick's like, "Do you care?" And then they just move on. <laughs> there's just no explanation, which is a wonderful moment. It's a, actually a really interestingly mirrored moment when they from. I feel like there's some really interesting parallels between Danny and Rose the Hat in that there's a. <laughs> a great moment. So right after the true not have turned Snakebite Andy into one of them, you know they've gone through the initiation. She's now like the the steam vampire. She asks, "Am I still human?" And Rose the Hat asks, "Do you care?" Like in exactly the same tone as Danny, as Dick says to Danny. It's really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, ghost boxing. So by the end of the movie, when they have the big ghostly showdown, the big shining showdown in the Overlook Hotel, 
he's been keeping these ghosts in these boxes in his head for 30 odd years. Right. And by this point, him and his friend played by Cliff Curtis and Abra have managed to kill basically all of the true knot except for uh, Rebecca Ferguson. And so she just inhales all the steam. She juices herself up like crazy. That's why they go to the overlook. He knows they can't beat her. So he goes in, he wakes it up. And when she gets there, she attacks him. They have a a showdown in his mind and he tries to put her in a box. But then when she gets the upper hand and she's, she's beating him pretty soundly and she notices through her own shine that he has these boxes in his head and she's like, Oh, you have something special in there. What is it? Give it up. Are they special? And he's like, they're not special. They're starving. And he lets them all out and they eat her. And it's horrifying and wonderful. Wow. It's a, it's such a good scene. And then they turn on him too, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Why did he get eaten at the end? Uh, no, uh, in the end, I don't want to spoil it too badly for you, but in the end, uh, there's some parallels with the shining in that he ends up chasing Abra around with an ax because the hotel possesses him. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's really good. Like you should just watch it. It's really good. It's really good. The, I think my favorite scene in the whole movie though, is when they, they get to the overlook and he's like, here's what's happening. You're staying in the car. I'm going inside. You tell me when she gets here. And Abra's like, why can't I come in? He's like, no, it's too dangerous and I have to wake it up. And when he goes inside, he wanders around and the hotel like comes back to life as he walks through it. And then he gets to the bar where his father sat in 1980 and has a conversation with Lloyd, the bartender, which again is Henry Thomas done up to look like Jack Nicholson. And they have a very similar and paralleled conversation where in the shining quite famously, the bartender offers him a whiskey and he takes it, you know, he takes his medicine and in Dr. Sleep, he, the bartender offers him that says, are you going to take your medicine? And Danny turns it down. And I don't want to spoil it any more than that, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully acted scene. And again, like the, the, the sets, the overlook sets in particular are incredible. And the movie also does something that I really love when a, when a when a late stage sequel does this, but you don't actually hear the theme music from The Shining until they go to the Overlook. And then you get a very <laughs> clear blast of it, and it's really affecting, really yeah. effective. So, yeah, you should finish watching this movie, dude. It's it's so good. Yeah. No, I will. I Everything you're saying sounds really, really interesting. Um, there's a have you, there's I, a I, there's a great scene where I think I mentioned where Rebecca Ferguson astrally projects to find Abra and then tries to like she thinks what what she thinks is happening is she goes into Abra's mind and starts like looking through the filing boxes that are Abra's mind, but it, what it turns out is that Abra has set a trap for her and gets and go, and like that whole sequence as well is incredible, just because Rebecca Ferguson goes from being cool and confident and fully in control to existentially terrified in roughly one heartbeat and her <laughs> and her performance throughout is is incredible so 
pitch perfect and nuanced. I, I really, she's so good in this. I don't know why she didn't win wow. awards. I mean, I do know why she didn't I mean, win it's awards. A, it's, a, it's a horror movie. Yeah. The horror genre movies, movie, yeah. Yeah, genre movies don't get taken seriously, but she's uh, so good. And she's actually, I don't know why I say that, because in all the places that the film did win awards, so like film festivals and all that kind of stuff, she was the one who consistently won. Like everywhere was nominated, she won a ton of festival awards for her performance. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a really interesting performer. Yeah. I really like um, the way you're describing it. I, I really like when a sequel takes the themes and ideas and uses them in a whole kind of different perspective. I'd be very interested how close this is to the book, actually. Is this is this as far from the book of Dr. Sleep as The Shining was from The Shining? Well, it's interesting. And again, I haven't read all of... I haven't read Dr. Sleep. I've just read about Dr. Sleep. But one of the key differences between the movie and the book The Shining is at the end of the book, the hotel burns down. So... Whereas at the end of the book, the Danny and his mother escape and Jack is frozen. So all of the stuff that happens in Dr. Sleep, the the movie just can't happen in the book because the Overlook burned down. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, hang on. Oh. Okay, okay. Sorry. Interrupted there for a second. Um... So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer. Like this is why I was saying that, like, it's really interesting how well the movie threads the needle between being a sequel mm. to the, a, an adaptation of the book and also a sequel to the book, and also a sequel to the movie. Right? Like it has to be all of those things, mm. and I think it achieves that through theme and character rather than through plot. And totally, I think it's very uh, interesting how Mike Flanagan's really captured the essence of a Stephen King story through his many adaptations. And it really makes me want to see him do the, the King books that I love, like The Stand. I would love to see Mike Flanagan do The Stand. Can you imagine how good that would be? Yeah, I tried to think yeah. about it because they already did an adaptation of The Stand just recently with somebody else. Um, I just That's want to see Mike yeah. Flanagan do whatever he wants to do. I know that he... His, uh, his next Netflix series is a young adult horror series, and then he's doing something based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm mm -hmm. just, I'm, I'm in for it. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be very, very special. Definitely. He is a really, really interesting director. Like, really, um, really, you get the feeling, <laughs> hi, which one, of, which one of your cats is saying hi on the podcast? Uh, that That's is you. Sheldon. That's Sheldon. Hi, Sheldon. <laughs> um, I, I really enjoy visually his work. Like it's so precise and the design is so good and his his editing or whoever he gets to edit his Oh he work. edits. He he actually he, he edits too. He's the credited It's really good. It's really it's just really high quality. Everything he he's he shoots and then edits. There's no jank to it at all. There's no like lost elements at all. It's really, really precise. And I've seen the, the, the so I went Midnight Mass and then Hush and then this. Mm -hmm. And um, every every frame has something in it that is worthwhile and interesting and is framed really nicely. So just from a basic like visual kind of point of view and from an editing point of view, I'm really, really enjoying like discovering his work. Good. Um, 
Can't wait for you to watch more of it. <laughs> I think I tried watching some Bly Manor and I I fell off that a bit. Oh no, Haunting of Hill House I started watching actually and I fell off that a bit. I really want to watch re- Oculus. You should definitely watch Oculus, which is an interesting sort of stealth Stephen King adaptation, but that's a conversation for a different time. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, uh, but Haunting of Hill House is probably my favorite thing that he's done. Oh, okay. uh, I, th- I think you started watching Bly Manor, right? I think Did I... I, th- I think it was Bly Manor, because that's the easier of the two for sure. It's the, it's the, the less horror-y of the two. Oh, okay. Which one has the creepy-ass children? They lock her in a cupboard. Yeah, that's Bly Manor. That's Bly Manor, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the one I've started. Yeah. yeah. You should keep going, it's it's, and it ends really well. Um, Hill House is, not to imply that Bly Manor is by any means bad, but Hill House is better. Right. Yeah, you you watched Re- Hill House recently, didn't you? Uh, yeah, we rewatched it earlier this year. We watched it, I think, right after we watched Midnight Mass. I also really enjoy, enjoy, and it's purely from for selfish reasons, but he seems to whip out these immaculately done single takes now and again. Just yeah. like without any fanfare, suddenly you're watching a four or five minute single take. And um, if you enjoy that, you should watch Hill House because there's one episode that's an hour long that's in four takes. <laughs> or maybe it's now, five. Is it actually in four takes? Is it is it jiggery pokery and. and... Can no, it's, tricks, or is it actually four takes? It's actually four takes. They had to they had to build the sets the way they built them purposefully to achieve it. It was a, <laughs> it was a, th- a thing they had to plan ahead of the series being even starting filming because of the way that that, that episode was going to be shot. I I feel sorry for producers in that stage because it must be like when when an actor says uh, when a director says okay I'm going to film this episode of four single takes the producer must be like, like just please don't just don't just just shoot it normally please mm-hmm. like, I mean a well a well deployed long long take mm-hmm. can make all the difference in terms of impact though right so yeah yeah it really can and it's you know okay. he's so good at doing that thing where the camera moves slightly and the context changes. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that episode of Hill House, it's number six or number seven, I can't remember which, um, mm-hmm. has so many moments of lo- like that because the camera is basically always moving. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a lovely moment right near the start where it's the whole episode is set at a funeral, and the four main four of the main characters are there, and they're all adults, and then Timothy Hutton plays their father, and there's a great moment where he he enters the funeral. And the camera pans past him, and then it pans around from his point of view. It pans to his children, and then it comes back around to him, and then it comes back around to the children, and they all—they're all standing there still, but they're all played by the the kids that play them in the past timeline. And it's just such a, a wonderfully impactful small moment that probably took so much planning and rehearsal, but it works mm. so well. Um, yeah, he's—he's—he's he's, he's probably the second best at that after. Spielberg at this point. Yeah. Wow. That's a hell of a director to be ahead of you. I mean, yeah, he's basically Spielberg. He's basically the inheritor of, you know, as much as we as much as Stranger Things is playing on Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, I would say Mike Flanagan is the the proper inheritor of both. Wow. That's high praise. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sheldon, Sheldon agrees. Sheldon agrees. Uh, that's high praise, and it's very interesting, actually, that you mentioned Spielberg, because that was a thought that occurred to me as I was watching Doctor Strange and how things are framed and linked together. It felt very Spielbergian. Spielbergian. <laughs> that's an adjective. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, so what's coming up? What have you got coming up for the next week, though? Chris, Christmas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. It's not as if you work in retail over Christmas. Yeah, yeah, well. No, I mean, I'm still attending Whistler Film Festival. I'm going to be publishing my year-end uh-huh. stuff in the next week sometime. And uh, that's all I got. I have no energy to think about anything else. Do you so, want to spoil your movie of the year yet? Or are you going to save that for next week? No, I'll save it for next week. Okay. Next week is Christmas, though, so we may have to either record early or record late. Next week is Christmas? Yeah. Next Sunday's Boxing Day. Oh my god. Do you know how much Christmas shopping I've done? Uh, probably slightly less than me. Zero, like zero. Precisely yeah. zero. I uh, I said to my wife this morning, how much shopping have you left? got left? And she's like, no, I'm done. I've done you. I've got you everything. And I've done nothing. So it's going to be a busy week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not alone. So anyway. Well, I look on... forward to... I look... Yes. I was going to say, on that bombshell, we should definitely, yeah, on that bombshell, we should probably end. I'm being beckoned, and uh, oh. yeah. So, thank you for listening. We go find us on Patreon. Give us money. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, <laughs> and watch Doctor Sleep because it's great. Yes, do. Okay. Thanks. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.